Hello, and welcome to the NLP Highlights podcast, where we talk about interesting work in natural language processing. This is Matt Gardner and Walid Ammar. We are research scientists at the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence. Okay, today our guest is Antoine Boslu, who is a PhD student working with Yejin Choi at the University of Washington. Today we're going to talk about a paper that recently got accepted to iClear 2018, titled Simulating Action Dynamics with Neural Process Networks. Antoine, it's great to have you on the podcast. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me on. So this is about simulating action dynamics. What is that? Is this like some physics thing? What are you talking about here? Yeah, so when we say action dynamics, we're generally talking about the effects that are caused explicitly or implicitly uh, by actions. So if you think about an action such as baking something, you know, some of the things you want to know uh, about an entity that's been affected by this action are that, you know, uh, its temperature has increased in the short term. Um, you know, and if you can think about a concept such as cookedness, uh, that entity has now been cooked. With an action like refrigerate, uh, you'd want to know that the location of the item is that's been refrigerated is now in the fridge. And uh, we also want to know implicitly that its temperature is now probably lowered. In general, it's it's when we say when I say uh, action dynamics, I'm I'm talking about modeling the effects of actions that aren't explicitly stated in text. So you mean like state change kinds of things? Yeah, in general, state changes, um, particularly those that you you wouldn't necessarily be able to extract with uh, a typical uh, information extraction system directly from text. Okay. And what assumptions do we need to make about the states? Uh, do we need to enumerate all the states that we care about from the beginning? What, what kind of assumptions we need to make here? That's a good question. At the start right now, we are enumerating the states that we care about ahead of time. When we started this work, we manually enumerated uh, something like nine states, which we then further compressed down to six. We use those to uh, annotate a set of verbs in some vocabulary that we also manually compiled as the states of interest uh, for this particular domain. So where do you think this kind of process modeling or dynamic uh, action dynamics is useful? Why should anyone doing NLP care about this? Yeah, yeah, that, okay. So I think that, you know, the reason that we want to model these action dynamics is really to be able to encode uh, representations of state that aren't explicitly written in text. You know, I, I hate this phrase, but as humans, you know, we're aware of the many common sense implications of the actions that we see performed in text. You know, when we talk about baking, there's the implication that something's been cooked. When we talk about cutting, there's an implication that something's shape has been separated into smaller parts. And these are obvious to us because our understanding is, is, is augmented by our own experience, but it's, it's just completely um, enigmatic to an AI agent that's learning from scratch. And since no piece of text describes these effects, there's no clear path to learning it. But these unstated effects might actually be the most important piece of information you'd want an AI agent to be able to condition on. Um, if you think about a recipe that involves chicken, the most important thing that needs to be done is to get it cooked at some point. You don't want to be serving raw chicken. But at no point in a recipe is it likely uh, going to explicitly say, at this point, the chicken is cooked. Um, at no point is it going to say, in this step, make sure to use the cooked chicken. 
you know, an agent should be able to make these common sense inferences based on seeing a preceding step, such as bake the chicken or fry the chicken. And what we really want to do is to be able to encode this phenomena in the representations of the state of entities. How do you capture this information? Like, how do you know what the entities are? How do you know what, I guess we talked briefly about what kind of states we have. How do you even model this at all? We assume that there's both a vocabulary of actions uh, and entities uh, that's provided ahead of time of the model. So as I uh, think I mentioned before, we have something like 400 actions roughly and uh, 3,000 entities, um, which we uh, the actions were manually compiled from lists I found online. Turns out if you you know just Google actions you can do in the kitchen, it'll give you a list of verbs. Not very, not very complex. For entities, I looked at the, uh, the list of ingredients that's provided with every recipe in the training set. Um, and I would extract unique ingredients like orange juice and olive oil from them. Uh, and that yielded roughly 3,000 uh, ingredients uh, that get changed throughout the course of a recipe. Would you get the same vocabularies if you just took all of the verbs in your input data and in your training data and all of the nouns in the training data? So verbs, um, very likely so. And uh, we, did, we did augment the initial list that we found with a, uh, a couple ones that kept appearing, but for some reason weren't there, but that you know, we thought had a, a high enough probability of appearing in the text that uh, we should probably just add them and model them. Um, as far as the entities go, I guess th- this is more of a question of the approach as well. Um, there's, there's a lot of nouns in in the text that can that can refer to constructs of raw entities that aren't uh, that that can be made up of different raw entities. So if we think about the word broth, for example, broth can mean something very different depending on what the initial set of entities you use to make it up. And so we wanted to represent these these constructs or these compositions uh, in terms of the entities that compose them, as opposed to being their own separate uh, entity value. So you consciously decided to exclude these from the vocabulary set? Yes. Um, it's not necessarily excluding them from the vocabulary so much that we, um, we wanted to consider entities to really be raw ingredients and to model compositions of raw ingredients as just that rather than giving them their own, let's say, embedding uh, or their own place in the vocabulary. Interesting. Okay. So then given this input of some text whose dynamics you, you want to model, and some set of actions and a set of entities. What are you trying to actually do? What are you trying to predict? Right. Um, so I think that the best way, generally, that I found to explain this is with an example. Let's. Uh, so let's start with. Let's run through an example like uh, cook the beef in the pan. Um, it's generally the one I use in most of my presentations. As input, uh, the model just receives the sentence "cook the beef in the in the pan." First it's going to attend to a set of actions embeddings and select uh, the one that corresponds to the action that it thinks it's being performed in the step. Um, So in the sentence, cook the beef in the pan, um, it's going to select an action embedding uh, corresponding to the action uh, cook. Uh, I should probably mention at this point that the action embeddings themselves are initialized ahead of time. So before we even start training, we initialize a single embedding for each of the actions in this verb set. Uh, the 400 that I mentioned earlier. And we also uh, initialize an embedding for each of the 3,000 entities that I mentioned earlier. And when we start training on a single recipe, 
or when we look at a single recipe in a batch, um, we're going to take, you know, we're going to take the embedding for each of the entities in the ingredient list and set those as the uh, as the memory uh, cells uh, for the NPN for that particular example. And so then, uh, well, the the component of the action selector is going to compute an attention over the four hundred uh, action embeddings. And select whichever ones it thinks are mentioned in the step. So, and cook the beef in the pan, it'll probably select the cook action. It would. It's also going. The entity selector uh, is going to compute an attention over the set of entities. Um, so, in the same sentence, cook the beef in the pan. It's there will have been a beef entity that was initialized initially, and it's going to choose the beef as that entity. So, that's sort of the simplest case of selecting entities. Um, we have a couple of augmentations that I'm going to describe in a second. Um, but for now, let's just assume that we've done these this dual attention and we've selected the cook action embedding and the beef entity embedding. In the simplest case, then, uh, the model is going to compute uh, a bilinear projection between these two embeddings, um, which we consider to be the new state embedding for the beef. At what point do you make uh, these choices? At the end of a sentence or after each token or after each recipe? At the end of a sentence. So we're working on extending it so that we can have a more adaptive way of updating the entity states, uh, possibly after phrases. But for now, we, we, we started simple and did it after each sentence. So at, once we do the bilinear projection, we take the resulting embedding, which we consider to sort of represent a cooked beef, quote unquote, predict the new end state from that embedding. So we have the six state change types, temperature, cookedness, uh, location shape cleanliness and, uh, yeah cleanliness <laughs> thank you and composition and from those we predict an end state across each of them or just a no change answer um so for cook the answer would uh would be that there's been a change in cookedness and possibly depending uh possibly that its temperature has also been increased and finally it's going to overwrite uh the the starting embedding for beef in the memory with this new embedding Uh, to represent that the only beef we now have access to is the one that's been cooked earlier. So from an input-output spec, uh, then, this model looks like input is text and a set of actions and entities, and output is a set of state changes after every sentence for every yes. entity. We also consider the entity selection to be an output because we use multiple intermediate losses to sort of bias the model to select the right entities and the right actions along the way. And what's what's important is that um, when we predict these states, whenever we make a mistake, um, we backpropagate uh, the gradients with respect to the loss of predicting the correct end state uh, back to the action embeddings. If we've made a mistake and hadn't predicted that the beef was going to be cooked this time, uh, the next time the cook action would be more likely to predict the correct end state if it's applied to a particular entity. And what's the representation, the desired representation for the state? Um, so let's say for the cook or for the location, is it um, like a discrete set of uh, values or is it? Uh... Yeah, so we um, we ran a crowdsourcing experiment to have Turkers give us a set of uh, a set of possible end states for the six different state change types. And then we uh, we manually pruned the list to the sets that uh, we used in the paper. So I think for temperature, there's three different possible states, cold and room temperature, along with the uh, no change option. Uh, then for composition, it's composed, not composed. Uh, cleanliness has three, clean, dirty, and dry. Cookedness is cooked and raw. Uh, shape, 
I think has something like four or five. And then location is like 270. Location was the one where we actually used the data set and we mapped uh, nouns in the data set to, word, to certain WordNet categories uh, that we manually selected, like container and vessel and surface. And we used those as containers. So we made a vocabulary ahead of time. There's issues with that, uh, which I'm sure we'll get into later. But uh, it seemed the best, best approach uh, to start since uh, doing something more more extended was sort of outside the original scope of the work. So can we talk about your choice of how to represent entities for a little bit? Absolutely. That seems like a pretty core component of your model and a choice that could have gone a lot of different ways. Sure. So why why do you think it's better to represent um, these compositions as mixtures of of lesser or uh, simpler entities instead of their own uh, its own entity in itself. Does this make sense? So earlier we talked we talked about broth and how you wanted to represent broth as a composition of whatever was in the broth instead of just introducing a new broth entity whenever you encountered it. What? Why did you make that decision? What are the trade offs here? So that's that's a really good question. I, I wouldn't say it's a better decision. In fact, ideally, in a perfect world, you'd probably want to be able to introduce a new entity for the mixture that's, let's say, a combination of the previous ones um, without just relying on, without relying on representing these, these new entities as just, uh, as just all the ingredients that compose it having the same representation in the entity memory, though. Uh, the problem is that uh, I, I didn't really have the labels to do this, to actually uh, have this functionality in the model. And I, I felt that modeling composition of entities as just uh, an attention over all the entities in the composition, that would, that would allow us to learn the, these types of patterns from scratch using some simple inductive biases in the network, such as the, uh, the coverage loss or, uh, or the recurrent attention, which is an, an augmentation that I should have described earlier. The idea really is that you know, the similarity of the state embeddings between entities in the same composition would make it easier to select all of them if even one of them was identified when computing the original attention over the entities. In, in practice, though, um, predicting compositional entities is the weakest part of the model. You know, unlike on predicting raw entities where we get something like 75% F1 uh, in the intrinsic evaluation, and for predicting compositional entities, it's only something like 21% F1, which is better than the baselines, but still really weak. Um, from an absolute standpoint. How do you get labels? So you said that getting labels was hard if you wanted to introduce new entities. How do you... you we haven't talked about this yet, but in the paper you mentioned you, you take that weak supervision, distance supervision kind of approach where you do a, like a heuristic labeling of what entities are in the text. Yep. Right? So how do you get that at all for these composition? Like if I see broth, how do I know what entities are in it for, for this labeling purpose? That's really the tough part is that we, for, for an example like broth, I actually don't have any heuristic labeling for those. Um, for something like dough, it's the same thing. For something like sauce, it's the same thing. What I do have a heuristic labeling for is, let's say I combine all of the, all of the entities that make up the broth in a step, and in the next one I have the word broth and no supervision there, I can make the assumption that because it's nothing new is being done in this step, I can just assume that the same, I sort of make the assumption that it's because there's a different word that's describing the composition made in the previous step. 
or the argument in the previous step is elided, or it's using a co-referent. And so I can make the assumption that those are the same entities that are affected in this step. So let's say I have the example, uh, you know, cook the beef in the pan, now flip it. In the second example, I know that the it probably refers to the beef. And I can make this sort of, I can use this same logic to say that if, if I see broth in a sentence and in the preceding sentence I saw all the ingredients that compose it, um, then all of the ingredients that make up the broth are being mentioned there. Um, and eventually with a couple of these cases, it should be able to learn that a broth is made up of those same ingredients. But it's, if the obvious, you know, failure case here is, you know, what if it's not right in the next sentence? What if it's five sentences down the line? In that case, it actually doesn't have the capacity to learn that right now. Interesting. But couldn't you use the same assumption to introduce new entities in exactly the same places where you assume that broth is, is a composition? Could I use the same assumption to introduce a new entity? It'd, it'd just be heuristic. Like, it, it, it's fine you didn't do this. Like, you made a choice. That's, that's fine. I'm not trying to criticize it. I'm just curious what the options are here. Because it, it seems like you could use the same assumption that you just made to get a different labeling scheme that lets you introduce new entities and not treat them this way. Yeah, we probably could have. I think that it's, it may be... So I think that it's possible that it, it wouldn't have learned the same patterns of what actually composes the broth at that step. If we introduced a new entity for it, um, then I don't think it would learn the same pattern across the entire training set that the broth is composed of those ingredients. And that was, that was really the intuition behind how we were going to try to be able to learn compositional entities, um, that we'd be able to see these patterns emerge across the same sets of raw entities over time. But it's possible that it would have done the same thing even if we did set up a new compositional entity. Um, and one of the things that we're actually working on now is being able to model those in the way you describe. Uh, while it seemed like a good idea initially, there's some, there's some pretty big shortcomings to doing it that way, um, specifically in terms of evaluation, as well as how, we, uh, how accurate we are in predicting them. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I, I was at EMNLP last year and saw a couple of posters right next to each other by, um, I think, folks in your group. So Yejin was one of the, the presenters. And I think Noah Smith was the other, Chris Dyer, some, some folks working on um, language models that incorporated notions of discrete latent entities yep. and, and introducing new entities as they were processing text, which just made, made me think of, of, could you apply those same ideas here? It's just interesting to think about what you could do next. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's definitely uh, similar work. I think it stems from sort of two different goals. I think that in that work, you know, it was it was a very well motivated uh, increased capacity for the language model. While in ours, we really we really wanted this interpretable interface to sort of actually almost model a symbolic process within a neural network. And so while their while their entity uh, embeddings are, uh, I I think if I remember well, the entities that they sometimes come up with aren't particularly uh, informative. I think ours ours are generally a bit more uh, generally have a bit more um, real world applicability uh, at all times, um, but both of them are really good works. So uh, I'd like to clarify. Uh, so after doing all the distance supervision, what is the what's the input output? What's the label data look like? You, you mentioned you need supervision for the entities, the actions, and the states. So uh, how, what does this look like? 
Are you asking about like what does the particular label look like? What do the different loss functions look like? Both? Is it is it a talk at the token level? Is there a state vector for each after each sentence in a recipe that you use for training? What we do is that after each sentence, um, we uh, when we predict each, each each action, we supervise the action prediction uh, with the action label that we've extracted. You know, using these weak heuristics. Um, and we do the same for the set of entities that we're predicting. Um, these are all binary cross-entropy losses, by the way, because um, we make it so that the model can predict multiple actions in a step um, and multiple entities as well. So it's sort of predicting the full action uh, vocabulary uh, independent of one another. And then we do some L1 normalization to make sure that the weighted sum of them is, uh, uh, is, 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 is similar to a softmax. Um, and doesn't explode in magnitude. And we do the same for the entities as well. And then when it comes to predicting the end states, we, uh, we use a cross-entropy loss for each of the discrete classifiers for uh, each of the state change types. So th those require uh, human annotation, I suppose? In, so in the development and test sets, yes. We annotated roughly um, 1,000 total recipes, um, I think actually closer to 900, to be able to have very dense annotations of the process itself. In the training set, it's all weak supervision, however, because uh, it's incredibly expensive to actually get these annotations. So we wanted to see um, how far we could go by just um, trying to capture these dynamics from, uh, from weak supervision, but still being able to evaluate on uh, something very, uh, very well annotated. So how do you do the weak supervision for the states? So for the states, uh, we, uh, we did some crowdsourcing where we mapped the actions uh, to particular uh, state change types and end states. And, uh, then we predict the supervision is just depends on what action was selected in the first place. How frequently is it that the action that you have from your weak supervision or even that's annotated in the validation set is different from the lemma of the verb in the sentence? I don't have exact numbers about that, but there are cases where you have, uh, let's say, while stirring the broth, add this, in which case you, you can have different constructions of the verb that, that are in the sentence. Right, but that the lemma for stirring would still be stir, and so you would predict the stir action, is that right? Yes. So do you have any idea of like just a ballpark 10%, 1%, like how frequently do you get a mismatch between lemma and action you're supposed to predict? It, well, in the training set, because we get the weak supervision by looking at these lemmas, never practically. Okay, and in the, in the validation set or test set? In the validation set, we, I, don't, I don't have these exact numbers. My guess would be that it's around 10 to 15%. Um, so when we, in the validation set, when we, uh, when we, did a, uh, an annotation with crowdsourcers for which actions occurred. Uh, I, I think that roughly 85% or so of the time the verb was correct. So it's, uh, it's, not, it's, it's not too bad. Uh, some of the ones that are generally bad are those related to colors. So if you have something like brown the beef, you'll, you'll, you'll eventually learn that brown should be a verb, um, or at least that's you know, what the, the heuristic supervision does when in fact brown is used as a color very often. So it's sort of tough to get those ones that are fairly ambiguous. 
But that's that's sort of a, a, a trade off and a sacrifice we're willing to make in order to to get the labels. The hope isn't necessarily to get this these perfect labels that allow us to do um, you know a perfect tracking of what's going on. The idea is to you know be able to build better intermediate entity representations uh, using these the symbolically motivated architecture. Um, so that you might have uh, representations that are, you know, easier to condition on for a downstream task. Interesting. And what about ent- for selecting entities? Um, how frequently do you get a mismatch between the raw recipe? Like you, you have a vocabulary of raw ingredients. How often is there a mismatch between the lemma that you get in the raw ingredient and the lemma that you see in text? Very often. Okay. What are some examples? For raw ingredients, less so. So generally, if, if it says something like cut the beef, it's, uh, it's, it's going to be the beef selected as the entity. There's no problem there. But it's in sort of the compositional entities that we described earlier, uh, like, you know, knead the dough, yeah. unless there's a particular instance where the dough was defined in just the previous step, it's, it's going to have, it's not actually going to be annotated in the training data. And so, you know, in those cases, actually, it's the mismatch is more than almost 80%, I think. Right, right. That makes a lot of sense. Okay, so how well does this actually work at predicting, I guess, your, the evaluation metrics you care most about are predicting the right entities and predicting the state changes, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it does better than the baselines on both. It's still a lot uh, weaker than I'd like, mainly because we're just, we're just not currently very good at predicting these compositional entities. Um, so while we do a fairly good job at, you know, covering, let's say, like the first four or five steps of a recipe in terms of tracking, once we get into some of the later, later cases, performance drops quite a bit. Um, you know, there's sort of this bias when you, uh, when you predict recipes that at the end, because you're predicting finished constructs, you should practically be predicting every single entity, practically. Um, you know, if you make a lasagna and the last step is serve the lasagna, you should predict all of the ingredients that have gone into the lasagna at that point. So it's actually it's sort of sort of very tough to do if you're not doing well on compositional entities. But we do fairly well at uh, predicting raw ingredients with something like a 75% F1 or sorry, 75% recall. It's very tough to actually uh, predict F1 for different types of entities. And then overall, F1 of predicting entities is something like 50-55%. And then for state changes, uh, we, do, we do fairly uh, well as well. We used a macro F1 measure, and we weigh that by how well we predicted the entities. We, I think we get around 44.5 or 44.4, something like that, which isn't too bad. And once again, better than both of the baselines uh, we have that are sort of the best right now. Um, just you know, typical RNNs as well as some more advanced memory models. What what are those advanced memory models that you compared against? So we used a recurrent entity network, which was a sort of a leading baseline on the Babby task and the children's book test for a single pass machine reading. We we adapted it for the task because it's originally made for a QA task. So uh, we took away the the question answering output module and instead put the R same end state predictors on top and we retrained it end to end. Uh, to be able to do that. What about these um, models that do um, latent entity, like the co-referent model that we were talking about before? Like it's a, a language model that tries to predict the next word given some notion of latent entities? 
the entity RLM. We didn't really compare to that model. It would have been difficult to sort of uh, evaluate it in the same way. In that, if if it failed to actually, you know, create the entity representation at a particular step for something like a a raw ingredient, then it would get them wrong the rest of the way, which would have sort of been a, an, an unfair comparison in that way because it just wouldn't wouldn't be really designed for the same task. Um, so we we didn't include it. Also, the work was sort of you know done in parallel. Right. Uh, so I think by the time we uh, we first submitted this, it wasn't even out yet. But possibly possibly a good thing to add for a future reference. Yeah, I, a lot of my questions earlier were thinking about this kind of model and wondering, could just a fancier language model do what you're trying to do without all of the crazy symbolic manipulation you're trying to do? Especially one that has some kind of latent notion of, of entities. Uh, I don't know, it's just interesting to think about how much of your, your stuff do you actually need. So that's one of the things that we're we're working on in greater detail now is is actually looking at you know all right we we came up with this architecture it does better at tracking and you know it does better at generation later on which of these components are actually critical for that so I, I don't think that just a pure language model uh, would do um, as well simply because it doesn't it wouldn't actually I think be able to capture some of these implicit state effects that actions induce as well but if we had that same supervision. Well, then I think it might look something like the recurrent entity network, um, though I'm sure that we could augment it in, uh, in more ways. But I think that it might do worse at generation, and that's one of the things that we're looking at right now. Ultimately, one of the goals of this work is to really be able to have a sort of a cleaner memory write operation when we're, when we're actually processing text so that the model builds those representations in ways in which it knows it can, rather than you know, just composing words a particular way. The goal behind that is that you know if you have these better representations internally to start with, um, maybe you can do better on question answering down the line or generation than you currently do. So you also had some generation results mentioned in your paper. Do you want to talk briefly about uh, what what that was? Yeah. So the process of generation was fairly simple. I really didn't want the uh, sort of the decoder and generation to have very much expressibility or expressivity. Because we really wanted to see how do the state representations that we have formulated using the NPN compare to what you would get with, let's say, uh, an attentive model or just a simple encoder-decoder. And so what we did is that we, given us a, a preceding set of steps in a recipe, let's say the three initial steps, you want to be able to predict the fourth one. Um, so the task is actually be performed as recipe step generation. And so what we do is that we take all the preceding sentences in the recipe and we pass them through the neural process network by one, updating the state of the entities after each sentence. And this sort of gives us uh, uh, the, the memory after we've encoded all these sentences sort of gives us a snapshot of the state of the recipe at that point in time. And we want to see if we can use these entity states uh, as a as signal to condition on when we're generating the next step in the recipe. So we take the entity state vectors from the memory and we use a GRU to uh, encode them sequentially to get a, a vector representation for them. And then we also use a different GRU to sequentially encode all of the preceding words in the recipe uh, to yield a representation for the word context. And then we do an element-wise multiplication of these two vectors, and we use that vector to initialize the decoder. And then we do typical word-by-word decoding uh, for the words in the sentence of the recipe. Does it actually work? Do you get reasonable recipes out? 
Yeah, actually, it's definitely reasonable. Um, we have some of the same issues as the seek-to-seek model sometimes, where it'll uh, it'll just you know fall back to a very common expression. But generally, it's it's very it it, it does augment the seek-to-seek models in a in a pretty clear way. Usually, something that is uh, that actually sort of shows the power of using the the current state of the entities uh, in time. Uh, there's this example in the paper that I sort of really like. You know, it's uh, I think it's the first one where you know the the reference is to sort of melt the butter in the skillet, and the NPN predicts melting the butter in the skillet as well. Um, while the seek to seek and attentive seek to seek sort of focus more on you know combining ingredients, which are sort of common phrases, or sort of greasing the pan. And you know, it's, it, it sort of shows that if you have a butter entity state available that shows it's unmelted. Uh, the model knows that that's, that butter is probably going to be melted in some way. And so it, it generates that in the next step. Something that's interesting about uh, that same example is that, you know, the most powerful baseline compared to the neural checklist model, um, what it does is that it just tries to use up a lot of the ingredients in that step because um, it's trained to optimize for entity usage as opposed to uh, conditioning on the entity states, which the NPM does. I, I always find myself a little bit nervous when there are anecdotal examples in a table in the paper. Because, um, yeah, it, it's nice that you found like a, a nice intuitive explanation, but really how generalizable is that intuition? Like, do you have like a quantitative uh, evaluation of any of this intuition? Yeah, so it's, I guess, the closest thing to the quantitative evaluation for that intuition uh, I, could, I could give is sort of the last two columns um, in the table, uh, table five, which shows the, the numerical results. You know, obviously the blue and rouge scores are, you know, there's a lot of issues with them, um, though we, we, we do better on them as well. But um, it's really this sort of verb and state change F1 that, that, that get to me. In verb F1, what we did is that we, we looked for the action that was performed in the sentence we generated. We look at, how, at the F1 score of how well that recovers the actual verb that's in the reference sentence. Um, which we have annotated. And then uh, we look, we do the same thing for state changes. So we map both of those verbs to the state change they induce. And we look at uh, whether the F1 of predicting the correct state changes based off that verb. And this, I think, is where you know the model shows that it's sort of superior is that it does better in both of these tasks, which granted are our, our evaluation metrics that you know, we, we sort of made up ourselves that show that our model at the very least is better at predicting the action that occurs in the next step and the state change that should be induced. Interesting. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So, I mean, yeah, I, I'm also fairly uh, you know, wary of you know, any type of generation evaluation metric, to be honest, um, and especially those that are sort of made up by the authors, uh, which in this case is me. But I think the fact that you know, we, we do better on all four of these metrics, and you know, I've, I've I've had the benefit of looking at a bunch of examples too. I generally think that the NPN does better at generating the next step than the baselines do. Though once again, these aren't the best baselines uh, possible, at least not in terms of the vanilla seek to seek and attentive seek to seek. So I, I, I think that you know uh, a much stronger generation model, which I'm sure will come around in the next couple of years, could also be very competitive. Cool. Any last thoughts before we conclude? This was an interesting discussion. Yeah, I, I'm really excited about this type of work that tries to sort of, you know, integrate common sense inferences into neural network architectures. And, uh, you know, one of the things that we're working on right now is just trying to extend it to other domains. So we're working on being able to do it in stories and uh, scientific processes. 
Now, I'm generally really excited about where the work goes. Hopefully, we can get rid of some of this weak supervision and do some more end-to-end training. But uh, I think there's definitely a lot of work to be done in this area. And I'm, uh, I'm really excited to see where it takes us next. Yeah, great. And I agree. It's a really interesting area. Thanks for talking to us. It was, it was nice. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for uh, having me on. And uh, I hope to uh, see you guys at iClear. Stop by the poster. Will do. <laughs>